Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, that are not cannot, be, cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Phil Newton, the pastor and author, once wrote, Plural leadership is the norm for every church. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Elders is plural and in every town is singular. It indicates multiple elders serving each church in Crete. Each reference in the, to the local church, elders demonstrates plurality as the New Testament practice. Paul's reason for for plurality, even in small congregations, makes sense. It provides accountability, support, and encouragement, increased wisdom and diversity of gifts to increase ministry effectiveness. So let me just take you back really quickly as we begin this morning to the same book, but in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This, I remind you, has been the purpose statement of this entire letter. Paul is reminding Timothy that the church belongs to God, and as such, as members of the church, They ought to live and behave in a way that that God has prescribed because the church is what? The pillar and the buttress of the truth. And this particular expression, pillar and buttress, right, has been something that has stood out to me for so many times. I mean, in fact, it always has. In fact, uh, next week we're going to celebrate our 83rd church anniversary, and I was reminded of the fact that on our 80th anniversary, I preached on those verses, Uh, The truth is, Rosemary actually had a cake made up uh, with a picture of our church on it. I don't know if you guys remember that. But at the bottom of that, we had the inscription that read, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. 
This expression stands out to me, and it has for many years because it reminds me of the importance of, of the church and the stability of the church. I think that's why 83 years is so important. The reason why we've been here is stability is such an important thing. Because the church is the God-ordained instrument that He Himself has created and given to us and the world to defend and declare the truth of the gospel to a broken and dying world. The church is the instrument that God is using to protect and to proclaim the truth of the gospel so that all the world might hear. And that through hearing, they might turn and repent and believe those who have been ordained to come to faith. The church... The body of Jesus Christ is the divine instrument that God is using to make disciples who then go out into the world and make other disciples, helping them to come to faith, helping them to get plugged into the church and helping them to get trained up so they too go out into the world in obedience to God to fulfill the mission of Christ. The church is God's family working together to fulfill the mission to bring salvation to the lost which means the church as the body of Christ is the hope of the world. It is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. That is why it's so important that we focus on the stability of the church. The stability of the church is vital, not just to the church, but to the world around us. And as such, the foundation on which the church rests must be rock solid. And that foundation of all the years I've studied the word of God, I see that there are three essential parts to this foundation. The first being the scriptures, the word of God. The scriptures proclaim the truth of the gospel. The scriptures reveal to us the very nature of God and who we are in light of him. The scriptures are the very breath of God, as Paul says. It is theonustos. It is his word to us. And the scriptures as such are the sole infallible authority for us in matters of faith and life. Right? Without the scriptures, we have no church. Without the scriptures, we do not know God. And this is the reason why we affirm the doctrine of sola scriptura, that the word of God itself and only itself is our final authority that settles all of the issues of faith and for the pattern for the church. And then as we talked about when we read in chapter 3, along with the scriptures, the church stands on its creeds and its confessions, its statement of faith, its doctrines. At the heart of what makes the church the church is the orthodox teachings that have come down to us through the church from the apostles. Doctrines that are essential like the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Without that, there is no Savior. The doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, because if Scripture is not inerrant, it'll be whatever you want it to be. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, the do doctrine of man's depravity, the doctrine of regeneration, that you must be born again. And the doctrine of salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Throughout the millennia, the church has stood on these essential doctrines to help the church to know and to understand and apply the scriptures and to follow Christ. The doctrines help us to see the clear dividing line between orthodoxy or what is called right teaching that leads to life and the heresy 
or the false teaching that leads inextricably to death. And then the third part of this foundation is the office of the elder, the under-shepherd of the church, or the pastor who himself is a sheep. Christ himself is entrusted to those faithful men and the commission to defend and to declare the faith. And these men have been entrusted with the spiritual care of the church and the members in that church. And they are, and they are to do that through the ministry of the word of God, which is preaching and teaching and through the oversight of the church itself. Pastors and elders lead through the ministry of the word of God, which means they must know the word. They must teach the word, and they must defend the word against all heresies and false teachings at all costs. This is why the church finding and developing and ordaining qualified men into leadership in the church is such a vital part of the church's ministry. Because when these, when the leadership of the church goes wrong, the church soon will slip off of its foundation. This is why Paul tells left Timothy in Ephesus. This is why Paul actually wrote the letter. The church in Ephesus, a church that the apostle Paul himself founded and started, a church that was thriving and flourishing, a church that knew and understood the gospel, a church that was influential in the, in the Roman Empire, over time slowly found itself drifting from its theological anchor. And the reason for this is the church slowly, for whatever reason, began to allow unqualified men to take up leadership in the church. Now, I believe they didn't intend to ordain wolves in sheep's clothing, and the men that they were ordaining at first didn't appear to be heretics or even unqualified. And we don't really know, you know, if it was just through blatant dishonesty that these men led them astray. If it's just simply that the, these men didn't have sufficient theological depth to understand what they're teaching about, or if they were just unconverted people who thought that they were really Christians. We don't know how it happened. All we do know from history is that it did happen. Unqualified men became leaders in the Ephesian church, and they began to teach false doctrines as if they were true. And the church, as a result, began to exhibit the signs that had lost its doctrinal purity, which began, the church began to be marked by infighting and squabbling, and people began to compete with one another for power, and there arose a number of behavioral problems inside of the church. And soon the church was falling apart, a once faithful, gospel-centered church. This is what Paul this is what Paul discovered when he visited the church on his first trip after he was imprisoned in Rome. And Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to see things get settled and get right. And then when he arrived in Macedonia, he wrote this letter to give Timothy clear direction on how he was to, to help and to rescue this failing church. And Paul told Timothy that we, as we've seen here, that he is to put an end to the false teaching and that he is to correct the behavioral problems and he was to shore up the church's leadership by making sure all the elders were men who were qualified for that office. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays out the qualifications for, for elders and pastors. It's very clear. The qualifications are very high. The standards are very high. Elders must be able to handle the Word of God, and they must be able to manage the church. They must be able to live lives that are an example of what it looks like to pursue godliness. Not an example of perfection, 
but an example of someone who is pursuing godliness. Now, in today's text, with that foundation laid, Paul begins to explain to Timothy how he and the church are to deal with and to take care of the pastors and elders that lead the church. Paul is going to explain how the church is to ordain and to care for, and if necessary, how to discipline the elders and the pastors of the church. In fact, let me just give you a real quick outline of what the major points of this text are. That way you kind of have a context and I can move quickly through that. The first point is how to care for pastors and elders in the church. Paul makes a point to remind Timothy that pastors need to be cared for just like members do. Second, he's going to talk about protecting pastors and elders in the church. Third, he's going to talk about the difficult subject of disciplining pastors and elders in the church who go astray. And then finally, he's going to talk about some conditions for ordaining the elders of the church. That's the four major points you'll see that we're going to go through as we read this text. That's the essential outline of this text. It's about how the church is to care for the under-shepherds or the elders or pastors who lead the church. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And the first thing I want you to notice is the word elders here. It is not that he's, ta- he's not talking about old guys. right? It's not, what, it's not what he's referring to. The word that he uses here in the Greek is presbyteroi, uh, which is the word that we get for Presbyterian. So when you think of the Presbyterian church, it comes directly from this Greek word, which simply means elder. Now, Paul uses this word interchangeably throughout this letter and through other other letters with the word episcopes, which is the word you get episcopal from, but which simply means overseer. He uses elder and overseer just interchangeably, like we use pastor and elder uh, interchangeably. And and as, as we discuss at length, Paul's referring to the theological leadership of the church, the leader, the leadership office of the church, um, or what we call the pastor. And notice in this verse, Paul reminds us of two primary functions that pastors perform in the church. The first one is oversight, because because he says those who rule well, that they rule or oversee the church well. And then the second is ministering the Word of God, which is the preaching and teaching. If I can remind you that that's the pastor and elder's primary responsibility in the church is to to exercise oversight and making sure theologically the church is going in the right direction, and it is to minister to the congregation the Word of God through preaching and teaching of the Word. And then notice he says in 17, let the elders rule will be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching. Now, before I jump in here into the main point, there's an underlying assumption that Paul is operating with that is really easy for us when we read it in English to overlook. And I want you to notice the word that he uses here, as he always does, is is elders, plural. When he refers to them, he refers to them as plural elders. And he even says those, plural. In addition to that, there seems to be some distinction. There are some who labor hard 
teaching and preaching, and then there are some that aren't particularly known for that. And what we see is the underlying assumption that Paul is making here is that the church is to be led by plural elders. The church is to be led by multiple elders or multiple pastors, not just one guy, but a plurality of pastors. That's the assumption that Paul brings to this discussion here. This, by the way, is why this is something that we're going to see throughout this text. We'll see this kind of theme, this assumption pop up over and over again. And we will see this throughout the letter. And we will see this throughout the entire New Testament, as we saw from the quote earlier. Whenever we see the Bible talk about church leadership, it is always plural and never singular. In fact, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and also uh, an author and the the president of Nine Marks uh, Ministry, writes this. He says, "The the Bible clearly models a plurality of elders in each local church. Though it never suggests a specific number of elders for a particular congregation, the New Testament refers to elders in the plural in local churches. When you read through Acts and the epistles, there is always more than one elder being talked about. This is the assumption that Paul is working with. He is assuming that churches will simply have a multiple, a set of multiple elders, and he assumes that some elders will be doing work that others won't be. There's a division of labor, so to speak, amongst the elders. Now, before we get it too far into that, let's talk about why having plural elders is an important issue. What is, the, what, what is important? Why is it important for a church to have multiple elders rather than just one preacher or pastor? Well, Mark Dever um, and Paul Alexander asked the question this way. So what are the practical benefits of having more than one elder? Well, first of all, number one, it says it balances weakness because guess what? Every single human being has a weakness. I don't care how awesome your pastor might be and how well-studied he is, right? He is not perfect. He has weaknesses. And when you have multiple people working together, we can overcome each other's weaknesses. Number two, it diffuses congregational criticism, right? Because it's not just one guy that's running roughshod over everything. It's It's a board who are leading theologically. Three, it adds pastoral wisdom. As the Bible makes it clear, there is wisdom in many counselors. Four, it indigenizes indigenizes leadership, meaning it brings leadership up from within, which, by the way, is what what churches ought to be doing, is raising up leaders from inside who then can lead the church. And it also enables corrective discipline. It allows a board of equals to be able to hold each other accountable and to be able to to demand conformity and repentance. And it also diffuses the us versus him, right? It's easy for congregations to get into this kind of thinking, especially when the pastor's leading in a direction that the congregation's not sure about. It can be all of us versus that one guy. This actually balances that dynamic out. You see, the reason why it's such an important issue is because plural elders provide security and stability for the church long-term. And as we said, stability of the church is an important issue. Right? When they're in, in single-pastor churches, if, is if the pastor is wrong, the church is in trouble, especially if he's wrong on big stuff. If the pastor is greedy and is motivated by money, the church is in trouble. If the, church, if the pastor is theologically weak, he might have a good heart and really love Jesus, but if he's theologically weak, the church is in trouble. 
Having multiple men who are theologically trained, who work together to lead the church is not only safe and wise, but it is also the biblical model. Now, this is something we've talked about repeatedly before, and this is the direction that we're going as a church, and we're in the process right now of working through some proposed changes to the bylaw. And by the way, we don't move fast here. In fact, we've been working on this for over a year, for almost two years now. But we're working on some proposed changes to the, to the bylaws that we hope to bring forward in the near future that will make it possible for us as a church to move away from just having one guy in leadership to a collective board of elders who work together, a, a board of theologically trained men who are qualified and who will seek the Lord's will together for this church. Because I believe this is how we protect the future of First Baptist Church. As I've said before, I've been here almost nine years, longer than basically any other pastor except for one, right? And, and, and there have been a number of theological shifts in our church over the years. And some of those have been good. And frankly, some of them haven't been so good. And so my aim is to set this congregation to continue to be healthy, whether I'm here for nine more years or not, or perhaps even longer. Who knows what the Lord has? And so Paul's assumption that he's working with here is the church will be ran by multiple elders. And in light of that, let's look again at verse 17. Let the elders rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now with that, we, let us talk about what Paul means by double honor. If you remember in the last section, Paul says in verse 3, honor widows who were truly widows. And what we came to understand is that the word honor can certainly mean show respect, but in this context, it meant to take care of the widows, to provide for their needs. And what Paul's referring to here is providing for the needs of the elders in the church, especially those who labor or work hard in the ministry of the word. Those who spend their time in prayer studying the word and those who feed the sheep of the word of God. Paul reminds Timothy that they are to be taken care of, that, that they are to have their physical needs met. And the reason for that is so that they have the ability then to concentrate and focus their attention and do their job well. Now, as I've reminded you before, there have been people who just simply in our country don't like the idea. In fact, there's actually a couple of denominations that just reject this outright. They believe that they believe in what's called an unprofessional or unpaid clergy, that they take all the money and use it for other things. Right? They don't like the idea of compensating pastors well enough for them to earn their living. They think that pastors should be bivocational, meaning that, you know, like, like Paul, right, that they work a secular job and that ministering the Word of God ought to be their duty that they do in their spare time. And this seems to be the sentiment for some of the people in the first century in that culture. But Paul makes it clear that the church was to, if, if they were to find, if the church is going to find and retain and keep qualified church leaders, they are obligated to, to take care of their essential needs. They need to compensate them. And not only does Paul say that, he doesn't just leave it in space for, for us to argue about this is just what Paul said. He actually goes right to the scriptures to support his, his assertion. Look at verse 18, he says, For the scriptures say, You shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What we need to see here is the first place that Paul goes for support 
is the scriptures in the first place he starts is the Old Testament. In fact, it's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. He quotes it word for word. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And what this is is a practical illustration because the law made it clear that an animal that was working had the right to feed itself from its work. Right? As, it was, as it worked treading out the grain to feed others, it, could, it got to benefit from the work that it was doing. And by analogy, what Paul is saying is those who labor to feed the congregation, the Word of God ought to be able to feed himself from the work that he's doing. Which then Paul makes even more expressly clear when he quotes the New Testament. In fact, really briefly, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, in verse 7, it reads, Jesus says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. You see, this is, this is when Jesus had sent out the 12 apostles to go preach the gospel, and he told them to bring nothing with them to support themselves, not to take any money, not to take anything extra, right? but rather to depend on those who they serve to meet their needs. Jesus clearly said that the laborer deserves his wages. And the thing that we need to realize is not only is, is Paul citing the book of Luke and calling the book of Luke Scripture, he is directly quoting Jesus himself as the authority. Jesus, God in the flesh, is the one who says that those who work ministering the word of God deserve to be paid their wages for their work. God himself has declared the ministers are to be able to support themselves from the work that they do in the word of God. Now, quickly on a side note, I don't want to pass this by because it has apologetic value. But by citing the passage in Luke that he does, Paul not only helps us to see that Luke was written in his lifetime, which means the middle of the first century, so we can't, people can't make the argument that Luke was written sometime in the second century, right? But he also affirmed that Luke is Scripture because he refers to it as Scripture. It is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. Some people will say that, that when Paul talked about Scripture, all he talked about was the Old Testament. Well, clearly, that's not true. Paul quotes as Scripture the words from Luke, not to mention the fact that Peter calls Paul's letters Scripture as well. But coming back to our main point, Paul's point remains. Those who serve as elders in the, of the church and those who oversee the church ought to be compensated, especially those who labor preaching and teaching because they have the most time invested in the work. Now, over the centuries, this has led to the development of two types of elders in the church. You have what is called lay elders or unpaid or unprofessional elders in the church. And then you have, then you have staff elders or elders who make a living in the ministry of the Word of God. In most plural elder churches, it's that way. You have those that are paid staff and then those who then volunteer their extra time. Now, the reason for this distinction is not every elder needs full-time employment, right? And not, not every elder will spend that much time. And this is really a good model for small churches to adopt 
especially when there's not a lot of resources to have a large paid staff. But Paul's admonition is clear. The, the church is to work to take care of and support its pastors and elders, especially those laboring in the word of the ministry, or the ministry of the word. Now, why does Paul say the word double honor? It's kind of a weird expression. Even our bylaws reference this, our current bylaws, not the ones we've changed so far. He says they're worthy of double honor. Does that, does that mean that you're supposed to you know, support teaching pastors twice as much as regular pastors? Right. Does it mean that you're supposed to, to support pastors at twice the level of, of, uh, of widows? I mean, is that what, what Paul's talking about? No, it's not the point that he's making. The point that he's making is, is elders are both worth, uh, worthy of financial support, but they're also worthy, worthy of proper respect for their office. That's the point that Paul is making. You see, a qualified elder, a truly qualified elder is not doing the job to become rich and famous. I just want you to know that that is not how that works, by the way, right? Especially in a little bitty town, right? A qualified elder does what he does because he seeks to glorify God and to be faithful to the calling that to which he's been called to and to take care of his congregation and to love the people that God has entrusted to him. That is why elders do what they do. That's why pastors do what they do. And let me just tell you, it is by far the hardest job I've ever done in my entire life. And I've been convinced, I've heard other pastors say the same thing, it's the hardest job in the world. Because day in and day out, elders and pastors, they get up in the morning and they minister to the word of God and, and, and love God's people to the best of their ability and continually labor in order to point people to Christ. It's always pointing people back to Jesus, even when... Those same, some of those same people are hurting them. Even when some of those same people are talking behind their backs, even when they're facing huge difficulties in their own life, even when they're battling their own debilitating depression, even when they're in those moments when they're feeling unequipped and overwhelmed, even when they can be in a room full of people and still feel completely alone, they suit up, they show up and they put the needs of the congregation above their own. And as such, pastors and elders who are faithful and who are qualified or worthy of the material support they get and the proper respect as one who is shepherding your souls, who, by the way, will still stand and give an account before God for what they did and didn't do. And so Paul reminds Timothy that the church is to care for its pastors and elders. That's the first major point that Paul's dealing with here. The second point is the church is to protect its pastors and elders. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what is, what is Paul talking about here? What he's saying is the church should, not, the church should be careful and not just blindly accept unfounded accusations against a leader in the church, a pastor or an elder. The church has a responsibility to, to figure out and discern between accusations that can be proven and those that, that, that are not proven. Why? Because this reflects the way that, that, that people, the God's people are to work in the Old Testament too. The Old Testament laws said the same exact thing, that people who were to be convicted of serious crimes, those, those things had to be established on sufficient evidence or two or three witnesses. By the way, it's also how Jesus 
in the book of Matthew tells the church how it ought to discipline its members as well. Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Keep it private. If he doesn't listen to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What Paul is saying here is that pastors are to be treated like everyone else. Any accusation that's brought against an elder or pastor of the church must be corroborated, just like accusations that are brought against anyone else. And the reason why this is important is because pastors and elders, especially in our culture, make very easy targets. The truth is anybody can make an accusation without any evidence. And with the advent of social media, those things swarm and stir up really, really fast. Just like accusations that are brought against anyone else. And the reason why this is important is because pastors like elders, again, are just easy to target. The truth is, elders and pastors are in positions of authority and leadership, and people ought to oftentimes look for ways to get over on that. So a pastor can talk to someone and confronts them in their sin, and they don't like that, and so they say the pastor is stealing money. Right? The pastor holds someone accountable for their actions, and they resent it, and they say that the, they accuse the pastor of being mean and rude and abusive and unloving. Right? Or an elder rejects someone's unwanted advances, and suddenly he's accused of... of of sexual harassment, or even worse. These kinds of accusations happen, and oftentimes these accusations are unfounded and false. And the church has a responsibility to protect elders and pastors from frivolous and harmful accusations. And the way they do that is to make sure that any accusation that comes forward is backed up by, by the evidence and by witnesses. Now, please hear me. I want to be really clear because we've seen the worst side of this. This is not a justification to cover for pastors and ministers at all costs. This is not what Paul's saying here. It is not about protecting leaders no matter what, especially those who are famous and are beloved and have done so much for so many people. What this is about is treating elders fairly is what it's about. It's about treating them like we treat everyone else. Now understand, an accusation, if it's brought against an elder or a pastor or any ministry leader, especially anything that's seriously serious, it should still be investigated. It still should be looked into. In fact, we have a very firm policy here at First Baptist Church that every serious accusation must be at least investigated and looked into to see if there's any merits to it. There must be an attempt to see if there's anything to the accusation because we seek to honor God by pursuing justice here in this church. And we do understand even the people that we love the most and the people we look up to the most are still sinners who can fall into sin. But no accusation is to result in discipline, whether it's public or otherwise, unless there's clear evidence to back up the claim. The church must always see that justice is done, and the church must also seek to protect true victims, but the church must also protect its leaders from dangerous rumors, rumors and vile slander that result from frivolous accusations. The church must be discerning between what is true and what is, what is false. And this can be a difficult balance to reach. It can be. 
Because we have, we've seen some churches cover up for elders and pastors for years who have been clearly wrong. And that just does nothing but stains the, the church. Right? And then we've seen churches, on the other hand, fire pastors at the first hint of even a possible rumor. They don't even like, they just gone, get out, of, get out of here. This, by the way, is another reason why having multiple elders can be helpful. Having a board of biblically qualified men who are loyal to God and His glory is a wonderful tool to help the church navigate through these times if there happen to be accusations made. But then what happens when there, when, when there are serious accusations and there's evidence to support them? What is, what is the church to do? Well, Paul gives clear instructions. He says, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so the rest may stand in fear. Paul is saying very clearly, if a pastor and elder is found in sin, they are to be subject to church discipline just like all other members of the church. But notice he says they are to be disciplined publicly. They are to do it publicly. Why? Well, for two reasons. Number one, the nature of their office as leaders of the church necessitates that their discipline be made public. The church never wants to be in a position of seeing like that they're covering up for somebody. It needs to be made public. It needs to be above board. That way the members of the church know exactly what's going on. The second reason, as Paul says, so that they may so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, Paul is assuming that there are multiple elders, and in essence what he's saying is discipline, public discipline of a pastor or an elder who's in sin will help to instill a healthy reverence and respect for the job because they will know that if they do likewise, that they will face the same kind of scrutiny. So why is this important? Because this is the place where churches begin to fall off the rails. When you see a church that has gone sideways, it always starts here from the pulpit with the elders and the pastor. When the elders and the pastors, when their life or their teaching begins to stray outside what the Word of God commands, the church's attachment to the theological foundation that's been holding it in place begins to weaken. And if a pastor and elder is allowed to continue in unrepentant sin and engage in false teaching, that attachment will weaken and grow worse. And finally, the church will, will slip off its foundation like the Ephesian church did. And over time, the, ch the church will just simply collapse under its own weight. So we're seeing, by the way, across America right now, mega churches that are disappearing. Mars Hill Church in Seattle is gone because of their because the elders of that church allowed their, their celebrity pastor way too much room to, to run amok. Willow Creek Church in Chicago, the same thing. The founder, by the way, of the, the, the seeker-sensitive movement, that church is collapsing under its own weight because its, because its head leader has been accused of all kinds of wrongdoing that's been covered up for years. When churches are allowed to slide, when, when leaders are allowed to slide the church is in danger of collapsing under its own weight. And the worst part is the consequences of that kind of failure are catastrophic, not simply just for the pastors and elders, but also for the people they lead. Because the pastor and the elders in churches like that, instead of being, bringing life, they become instruments of death and destruction, consigning people to hell. Worse are those who think that they're right with God. This is why the church discipline must be applied to elders and pastors. 
as well because it truly is a matter of life and death. And Paul makes it a point to emphasize that. But he also emphasizes fairness here too. He says, In the presence of God and Christ, Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without perjuring, I mean, excuse me, prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Now on a side note, Paul, notice he says, elect angels. This again is a reminder of God's sovereignty and the doctrine of his divine election that extends not only to his people, but also to, to all of his creatures, the angels included, who God has ordained to not fall. The fact of the matter is, is God is completely sovereign and in control, which we're reminded of continually. But coming back to Paul's main point here, he admonishes Timothy to be fair in his treatment of elders and pastors, and he warns him to be impartial. Why? The reason why this is so important is because it, it is easy to rush to the defense of the people that you like, the leaders you like, right? It's easy to go, oh, that's, that's nothing. It's easy to stick up for those people that you like, and it's certainly easy to, to uh, accept charges that are level against the people that you don't like, especially if they come from people that you do like. Paul is saying that you need to be fair. Paul is calling Timothy to be objective and seek the truth in fairness, which is to protect elder, elders from frivolous claims, but to discipline those who are found in their wrongdoing with, with impunity. This right here, is the charge of the church. But here's the thing. Again, I know I'm kind of beating the same drum, but I want to make sure that I'm clear about this. The only way I think that you can effectively do this as a church, biblically speaking, to apply biblical discipline to a, an elder is to have other theologically trained men who can apply discipline, which means you need multiple Elders, men who can hold each other accountable, men who know the scriptures and reason from the scriptures to keep one another on track, men who can discipline other elders if required. This is why having plural elders in the church is such value to the church itself. Now you might be thinking, well, pastor, you've been talking about this dumb subject of plural elders for a long time now, for a couple of years. Why don't we have plural elders already? Well, for two reasons. Number one, our current bylaws, as they read right now, don't allow for that yet. I mean, basically, our current bylaws read is that the senior pastor is the head guy, and we can hire as many pastors as you want, but the only person that really has any say-so is the senior pastor. Now, those bylaws were written like that before I got here, right? That's just the way they are. And it's the legal structure with which we operate. If we're going to change that, we've got to change it there legally, right? That's the first one. The second problem that Paul actually helps us to see right here. He says in verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands or take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You see, since the church is to be built on multiple qualified, biblically trained elders, there is a temptation for churches to kind of rush the process. Come on, we got to get this done, especially in our world, right? Come on, who's next? Who's the next application, right? Let's just pick somebody. Let's get it done. Let's hurry up. Let's get to the next thing, right? It's, it's very easy to just take that temptation to hurry up, especially when the people you're talking to seem to be legitimately you know, good people. It's easy to rush the process. But Paul tells Timothy to not get in a hurry to lay hands on people. And understand this expression, laying on of hands, is a reference to the ordination service. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, don't be in a hurry to ordain someone. 
When pastors and elders are officially commissioned for their work, they are to be ordained by the church. The church is to sign off and to publicly ordain them. Which, by the way, again, I want to remind you that the church and only the church is the only God-given instrument for ordaining any pastor or elder or preacher. There is no legitimate way to become ordained outside of that. Seminaries and Bible colleges can train up pastors, but they cannot ordain them. The online, like, $35, you know, ordainme.com, that doesn't mean anything. The local church is the only God-given instrument for ordaining pastors and elders. And so what Paul's referring to is the ordination service of elders and leaders as they lay their hands upon the prospective elder and pray for them as a symbol that this person has indeed been called and now is prepared for ministry and has been commissioned by God to enter into that ministry. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, don't get in a hurry to do this. Don't rush the process. Don't be in a hurry to, to fill up the elder board. I know you need five and you only got four, but don't be in a hurry to fill that spot. Why? Well, Paul says that qualified men to be put in place. But, but why the warning not, not to hurry? Because the church must take its time to make sure that the person they're putting into leadership is qualified to do so. The church and the leaders must take, must take the time because guess what? They have the responsibility to not rush the process. By the way, the elders of the church and the church itself is responsible to God for those that they ordain. Notice what Paul says. Do not be hasty in the laying on the hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Paul is telling Timothy that the elders who ordain other elders are personally responsible for them. This is a big deal. This isn't like, hey, we just ordain somebody, they go off and then they do something stupid. It's not my problem. Right? We have a personal responsibility to make sure that they are who they say they are. Elders and churches who ordain other elders are saying, we know them. We've seen their testimony and we're standing behind them even when things get hard is what, what they're saying, which means we are responsible to God if someone goes off the rails. Ordaining someone for ministry is not a frivolous task and should not be taken lightly. It's a heavy responsibility with far-reaching consequences. And so churches must take their time. In fact, notice what Paul says. This really kind of gives us an indication. Verses 24 and 25, he says, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also God works, God, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, are not cannot be, remain hidden. What Paul is simply saying here is you just, need to, if you just need to get to know who they are. And what that comes from is time. That's really the only way is through time. Did you build your relationships with them over time? Give them enough time. Give anyone enough time. You will see their true colors shine through, right? Their sins will, even if they're not like conspicuous at first, will show themselves, right? They're, the things that they do, the loving things that they do, even though that might, they might seem really hard-nosed at first, will, will shine through. Don't be hasty, Right? but give them enough room and enough time to show who they really are. Right? That's what really the essential thing that, that, that Timothy is, Paul is telling Timothy here. Right? When you ordain someone, you're responsible for them 
So make sure there's plenty of room. Don't be hasty. Make sure there's plenty of time. You've seen them. You've known them. I'm going to tell you, this is a lesson, you know, I've learned the hard way early on in my ministry, especially with, you know, bringing people in as trusted leaders in certain areas and watching that backfire, right? And then I read a text like this and realize this is, this is great wisdom here. Now, with that being said, let me just really quickly address verse 23 because we skipped over that one. Paul says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And I'm going to tell you how people interpret this particular text is really going to start, is really going to be determined by how people start with their assumptions. Because I've heard members, I've heard a number of people have different ideas of what this means. I heard somebody say that, you know, well, you know, they start with this idea that, that pastors are prohibited from ever drinking anything, you know, in, that has alcohol, including wine. They're just saying, like, pastors never, ever should do that, right? And then, and then when you look at this verse, they say, well, here's the problem is back then the water was filled full of parasites and it was polluted. And, and so what Paul was telling Timothy is to drink wine because it acts like an antibiotic and this and that. The problem is, is wine is not an antibiotic because if it was, then there'd be a whole lot more prescribing of the wine, Right? Secondly, alcohol doesn't get rid of parasites. Otherwise, there'd be a whole lot of that being prescribed in third world countries where people have parasites. It's, I, I, I understand the, the motive, right? But it's, it doesn't get us there. Some will say that, well, Paul's just talking about unfermented grape juice, you know, that, he, that, he's, that, the, that he's saying, just drink grape juice because it's better for you than, than the water. But the problem is the idea of stable, unfermented grape juice being available at that time is just, it's a farce. In fact, it didn't even really exist until like the 1700s until a Methodist minister named Reverend Welch, Welch's grape juice, invented the process by which they could pasteurize it and make it stable. The truth is, he's talking about real wine. And then I also read a commentary that suggested that, that Paul advised Timothy to drink a little wine, you know, just a little to, in order to take the edge off because pastoring a church, especially one that's in trouble, right, can be very stressful and cause digestive issues. And so drinking a little wine will just kind of calm his nerves a little bit. And I can see maybe there's some merits to that, but I can't say that's the reason why, he's, why he said that. In fact, the reason why Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine we're not going to be, we can argue about it and we can debate about it. We're not really going to know fully what he's saying. What we do know is that Paul does tell him to drink a little, a little, a little bit of wine, real wine, right? Which means drinking wine or alcohol is not prohibited for Christians and it's not prohibited for elders and pastors. Again, we go right back to Jesus's, you know, turning water into wine. I heard somebody even explain that. Like, I mean, at a university, I heard somebody talking about, well, well, Jesus, what he did is he, when he turned water into wine, he bypassed the process of photosynthesis, and really what he made was a big jug of grape juice. That doesn't explain the guy saying, hey, man, they saved the best for last, right? Because he knew that people saved the worst for last because when people are, are, are a little bit inebriated, right, it doesn't matter what it tastes like, right? So we know, right, that it's real wine. And that there's not a prohibition from the Bible for that. What's prohibited clearly is drunkenness, right? Being drunk, losing control, that is always prohibited. And what's prohibited is addiction, being addicted to wine. In fact, that's the qualifications that Paul speaks of. So that's clear. And the reason why I bring this up, talking about caring for pastors and, and elders, and hopefully at one point we'll have 
a number of them, is what we need to realize is that many people have unbiblical expectations of what they think that pastors and elders ought to be doing and how they should be living, right? That people in American culture have unbiblical expectations. In fact, I would say that a substantial number of Christians believe that it would be a sin for a pastor and elder to have a, to drink a glass of wine or any type of alcohol at all, which again, the Bible does not prohibit. And, and many people believe that pastors ought to always be nice. I'm just telling you, that's the assumption that people make. You let me get irritated with someone and get really, and get kind of like, like forceful. Well, I thought she was a Christian. Or, or here's what they like to say. is like, oh, well, that's real nice, pastor. As if that, that doesn't, you know. Right? Or how about the assumption that, that people believe that, that, that pastors should never be passionate about issues in the country. Like, I know, I know pastors who avoid the whole issue of the pro-life movement because they don't want to be divisive. And I see that as, not, as an issue of justice, and I think we have to speak firmly about. Pastors have this expectation that they always need to be available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year for anyone and everyone, no matter what happens. And I'm going to tell you, that's an unrealistic, unbiblical expectation. Right? That's why we have a church family, and we have supposed to have multiple elders and also deacons. Pastors and elders, I think sometimes the American people think they should pretty much be close to walking on water. And I'm going to tell you, it's not going to ever happen. The truth is, pastors and elders are shepherds, under shepherds, but they're also still sheep like the rest of the sheep. And that they, we need to care for pastors and elders by not having and entertaining unbiblical expectations of how we think they ought to behave and how they ought to look and how they ought to do things, right? Are the qualifications high? Absolutely. Go to those qualifications and hold every pastor and elder to those qualifications that are in the Bible. Absolutely. But unbiblical expectations, we should put those away. We should, we should care for our elders the way the Bible prescribes. By the way, what you see here. We're a family. We're supposed to be taking care of one another, right? And we all have different parts to play. We all have different roles to play in the church. Some have, you know, some have, have the gift of mercy who are there to love people when difficult times. Some people have the gift of administration. Some have the gift of, of hospitality. Some, as we said, there's lots of those spiritual gifts that we use, and we all are individual different parts of the body of Christ, what we need to do is to remember as a family, we need to be taking care of one another. We need to weep with one another weeps. We need to prefer one another over ourselves. We need to love each other through thick and thin. And so just really quickly, let me give you just four quick applications we can make from this and we'll, we'll wrap up. By the way, why deliberately go through this text right here? especially this part of, of 1 Timothy. The reason why is because we as a church all need to be on the same page on what the church is supposed to look like and how it's supposed to behave. From the pastors to the members to the deacons all the way around because we want to be the God-honoring church that he's calling us to be. So the applications would be, number one, is, is as Paul says, support your pastors and your elders. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, I have to say, uh, he says, let everyone, uh, anyone who is taught the word share all good things 
with the one who teaches. And I have to say, I have been blessed. I want you to know, I don't talk a lot about giving here, right? Because I just feel like it's one of those things that I want put, you know, that God put on your heart, but it's in the text, so I address it. But I have to say, for nine years, we have our family has been blessed that you guys have taken care of our needs. We've never needed anything. I mean, we've we've had to, you know, time to time, Kim's, you know, uh, worked nails, and I've done little odd jobs from, you know, to pay for extra things. But by and large, our needs have been met, and we are grateful to God. I thank God every day. I wake up in the house that's provided by the church, and I am grateful to God for the fact that I don't have to think about, you know, um, you know paying for groceries, that I can do my job without having to worry about those things. And so I want you to know, I praise the Lord for that. Secondly, I come back to this over and over again, is be shepherdable. You know, we're working together, right? But be shepherdable. Allow the Word of God to be preached into your heart. And when things are maybe getting sideways, listen to wisdom and and even maybe even receive a rebuke. Believe me, I don't like giving them but be willing to be shepherdable. Third, pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastor. Believe me, when people tell me that they're praying for me, I just celebrate that, right? Because I'll take every bit of that I can get. I want you to know, because I need it. And then finally, is always the call that I will always make forever and ever. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you've done that, praise the Lord, right? And if you fall down on your face and make a mess of things and you think that God hates you, repent and believe the gospel. That's, 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 that's our only part of this whole thing is we continually turn away from the world and turn our eyes to heaven and say, Lord, I can't do it. You need to change me, right? But for those who may not have received Christ, I will always call you to turn to him. He is the one who came into the world to do for you the things that you couldn't do. He lived the perfect life you couldn't live. He died upon the cross to pay the penalty you couldn't pay. And then he rose again three days later, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do. He can save you from your sins. He is the one who reconciles us back to the Father. And we receive all of that by faith and repentance. And so I call you to repent and believe. And with that, let's come before the Lord and pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.